there. I'm Dr. Gabe Lowe, and welcome to the Hard Questions, No Answers podcast. This is a show that is less interested in answering life's difficult questions and more interested in the process of wrestling with them. This podcast is a forum to celebrate the messiness that makes us human. It is a place to invite the unanswerable questions because often it is precisely these types of questions that push us to dig deeper, to think harder, and to refine our approach to life. So, if you get to the end of the episode and you still have lots of questions, then I've done my job. I invite you on the pursuit of no answers. My guest today is Dr. Michelle Ami Reyes, who is the Vice President of the Asian American Christian Collaborative and Co-Executive Director of PAX. She is a scholar-in-residence at Hope Community Church and author of Becoming All Things, How Small Changes Lead to Lasting Connections Across Cultures. She lives in Austin, Texas with her husband and two amazing kids. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Michelle Ami Reyes. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you. And today, the topic that we are going to be discussing is celebrating culture, cultural differences, cultural identities. Uh, And this can lead in so many different directions. But I wanted to start with a book that you wrote recently, Becoming All Things, How Small Changes Lead to Lasting connections across cultures. So I want to ask you and hear a little bit about the story behind that, you know, what inspired you to write this book and uh, what what led you on this journey? Yeah, for sure. There's a, well, thank you for having me. It's it's fun to be talking with you, Dr. Lowe, because uh, we have all of these connections uh, and, and mutual friends, and, uh, and and so it's really just an honor to, to, to be here. Um, I have a, a long story and a short story for, <laughs> for why I sure. wrote this book, and I think in many ways the the, the long story is that throughout my life, uh, I've, I've always felt like the misfit, like the like the person that sticks out. And, and, and some of that has been quite literal in the sense that I grew up in a predominantly white community uh, in all, I, I attended an all white church and all white school. Um, and, and people really didn't know what to do with me. Uh, me. Me and my sister, I should say, uh, we were the only, we weren't just the only Indians at our school. We were the only brown skinned people at our mm. school. There was no other African-Americans or Asians yeah. or Latinos or Native Americans at our school. It was just me and my sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, um, I've, I've shared before in the past, you know, I, I was made fun of, I was bullied in, in different ways. Um, you know, as many Asians have had uh, th- that experience of sitting alone at the cafeteria table. Uh, and, and, and for the longest time, I thought there was something wrong with me, you know, like maybe I was just uncool or maybe I just wasn't that pretty or maybe maybe I talked weird. Like I, I didn't know. I just knew nobody wanted to be my friend. Right. And, sure. and it wasn't until much later. Um, actually after college that I started to realize, you know, there were cultural and racial dynamics at play mm-hmm. <laughs> in the things that kids were saying and doing to me. And, and so um, where, my, where my book begins, even before getting into the practical steps of connecting across cultures is learning about the beauty of each of our cultural identities and the beauty of, of, of how God has made us and in our bodies with our skin colors, mm-hmm. uh, with our, with our traditions and, 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 and families and values and that we are all different and that's a good thing. Uh, and, 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 and how to lean into that, how to develop that and celebrate that. 
And then the, you know, fast forward to my husband and I being church planters here in Austin, Texas. Uh, and in many ways, vocational ministry for us is a daily crossing of cultures. We're in a black and brown, low-income disadvantaged community. Uh, and, 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 you know, in our day-to-day lives, we're connecting with African-Americans and immigrants um, and, and Asian-Americans, you know, from, from, from Vietnamese to Indians like myself uh, and, and so on. And, and learning to connect across cultures and, and to truly live into being a multi-ethnic, multicultural body of, of Christ, a multi-ethnic, multicultural church is our heart, it's our passion. Um, and so I've also written this book for the church. I've written mm-hmm. this as, a, as a, in many ways, a, a roadmap for the church, particularly in this moment, <laughs> in this moment, in this totally. moment, we are where we have grown in our consciousness of, of the racial divides that are plaguing our, our, our society to say, here are eight practical steps that each of us can take to better love our neighbors, to love, better love all of our neighbors of different ethnicities and skin colors. And so that's the long and the short version of why I wrote this book. Totally. Thank you so much for sharing. And I think as you were sharing some of those personal stories growing up, I could resonate with a lot of what you said in terms of, for me, I did grow up in uh, a place that was predominantly white. And so I can relate to being one of, if not the only Asian person, you know, sometimes there were other children of different backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds besides majority culture. Um, But, you know, I think that is you know, a, a common experience for a lot of people who are mm-hmm. ethnic minorities. Uh, and so I'm curious, at, you know, and I think part of that process is trying to figure out how to, what to accept and reject, um, because I feel like there can be a, a pressure to mold into the majority culture to be accepted, to sort of go with the flow or to try to not stand out. Um, so what was yeah. that process like for you to try to figure out, you know, how do you make friends as somebody who looks different? How do you grow up in school and meet people? And at the same time, your home life looks very different than your peers. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, so much of what you said is, is so true. And, and I mean, I'll, in terms of my, my own experiences as well, like, you know, you don't want to be the nail that sticks out because that's the nail that gets hammered down. And, um, I, you know, I know so many Indians that joke about having like brown weekends and white weekdays, right? <laughs> in, in terms of like, you live your life completely different, how you talk, the language you speak, the clothes you wear, the food you eat. And, you know, like I mentioned, I, my turning point really wasn't until after I graduated from college uh, and, and, and meeting uh, my now husband, Aaron, who is second generation Mexican-American, uh, and I myself am second generation Indian-American. And at the time, I couldn't explain to you that I was going through these stages, but I look back and I, I can now sort of catalog the stages of development that I totally. went through. Uh-huh. Uh, and the first stage was just kind of like ground zero is just thinking that I was white. And I think a lot of ethnic minorities have that period in their life where they just kind of assume, yeah, we're all the same, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and and I don't know if I would have verbalized it this way, but I just felt like I was like all of my white peers. Um, like, yeah, we think the same way. We live our lives the same way. We're all, like, we, we are we're, our families. We all do the things the same way. And I I remember as, as my husband and I, we first got married and we started to 
have conversations about, okay, like, tell me about your Mexican culture. Tell me about your Indian culture. We went to church one Sunday and we both had this aha moment where we're like, wait a second, we're not white. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. We we came home and it was like the conversation for that whole afternoon was like, oh my goodness, we are not white. And no shade on our white brothers and sisters. I mean, Mm -hmm. every skin color, every ethnic background and cultural identity is beautiful, but it was like that that moment of awareness, that epiphany, like, oh, we're different. Uh Uh, uh And then, you know, that next stage is like figuring out and cataloging all the differences. Okay. I'm different in this way. I'm different in this way. I don't, I don't do things the way that um, I don't, you know, I eat with my hands and, uh, and we have an open door policy in our home and and Mm -hmm. it's totally normal for somebody to just walk in um, and, and eat a meal with us. And, and, oh, okay. My, my white neighbors don't like it when I just appear (laughs) unannounced. (laughs) And, and, and so on. And then I think finally the third stage was actually realizing, okay, I don't need to actually compare and contrast myself uh, to my white brothers and sisters, I can just be, I can, I can just celebrate myself instead of having to always Mm. explain my differences. And instead of always having to say, okay, I know you do it this way, but I do it this way. Uh, and let me, let me try to like make this less uncomfortable for you. Um, getting to that third stage of like, this is just who I am. (laughs) You're, you're you, I'm me and let's coexist and, 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 and celebrate each other. Um, and I think that, that three-part developmental stage is very common. Um, I couldn't have cataloged it that way at that time, but now that I look back, and and I think that journey, that really began at the beginning of my 20s. And, and, you know, I'm 15 years now into this uh, (laughs) journey of of delving into my cultural identity. And at this point, I feel like by the grace of God, I, I feel like I can actually be proud of who I am, celebrate that. Um, I've addressed a lot of that shame, um, finding resilience and, and healing. Uh, and, and that's my hope for other ethnic minorities is that they can get to that point as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what I really appreciate about what you just said is sort of cataloging that internal journey. You know, you, you can't yeah. escape the the outside, the interactions that you have on a day-to-day basis. You know, it just comes whether you like it or not. Um, <laughs> but I think that for for everybody and especially for ethnic minorities you have to choose to go on that internal journey and it can be very as you described very uncomfortable and so i'm curious to hear a little bit about what it was like for you to sort of push through some of that discomfort of going through that internal journey cuz and not to say that it only relates to race or ethnicity you know i think with faith it can be difficult mm. to go through that internal journey i think with our families of origin our emotions it can it can be difficult to go through that internal journey but i think specifically for you as you think about as you sort of put it cataloging that process you know what was it like for you to push through some of that discomfort yeah, uh, honestly, I think step one was was addressing the hurts and the pains in my mm, past. And, totally. um, you know, for so long, I didn't feel like I had anyone to talk to, um, you know, being bullied at school, being made fun of. And I've, I've tried to be more open with that because I know that other people are experiencing that and, and we need each other. 
Uh, but it's it's very hard to talk about the fact that you know I was I was both verbally and physically bullied as a as a kid. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nobody wants to talk about that. Yeah. It's it's shameful. Mm-hmm, uh, but mm-hmm. even that, it's it's sometimes hard to even talk about these things without without tearing up, without just feeling like you're reliving that the the the, the memories, the images, all yeah, of that um, the trauma of it. For sure, all all of that, and I I think what I found in my husband was, was somebody that I finally felt safe enough to share those, those uh, stories with Um, someone that I knew was going to, to honor those stories and, Mm. and, and love me (laughs) uh, as I'm putting it all on, on the table. And so, um, and then as I became more and more connected with the greater Asian American Christian community and, and other Asian American Christian women, I have a, it's not a big group, but it's a small group of women, trusted, dear friends that I have begun to open up with them about as well to share those, those stories and those pains. Um, mm-hmm. And I think for me, one, just verbalizing that was, was part of the healing journey, um, mm-hmm. having having people like myself, fellow brown skin, uh, Christian men and women affirm that what happened to me was wrong, that, that, um, that God, God's heart breaks for this too. Um, these have been such healing moments for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, like I said, I do feel like I'm at a place right now where, where I can be myself, celebrate, be proud of who I am. And yet we, uh, we recently commemorated or, or or witnessed, I should say, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Totally. And that, that weekend was hard. That yeah. was a hard weekend for me because that brought up so many memories of, of the, you know, like the day after 9-11, going, mm-hmm. going back to school, mm-hmm. kids asking me if I was a terrorist, um, you know, all of the the heightened security checks for my mom at the airport, um, sure. you know, sec- security guards not understanding what a sari is and like asking her to take it off, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> it's her dress. Like you don't ask a woman to take her dress off at the airport, but, um, and you know, the list goes on. And so it, it still comes back. You know, I feel like yeah. even though I've gone through a, a, a journey of healing and sharing my stories and being more open and vulnerable of what I've come through, there's still moments and events that will still bring back those pains. And so I, I just, it's an ongoing journey, but that's the long story short of answering your question of like, how have I begun and how have I started on this journey? It's by, by turning to, to address those pains head on, but mm-hmm. with the hope and the mindset of like the psalmist, right. Who, who mm-hmm. brings his lament to God <laughs> and trust that God is going to heal him, right. That God is totally. going to find the, the brokenhearted and, 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 and to heal our pains. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Because my, like in the words of Sheila Wise wrote, uh, you know, she's wrote this fantastic book, you know, journey toward racial healing. You know, my, my hope for myself and for others is to, to get well and to stay well. You know, I think mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. really what resilience is, totally. is um, yeah. to overcome these pains uh, and, and to continue to, to thrive in all that God has uh, made us to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think when you say the word thrive, and I think from hearing you describe this process, uh, the the other word that comes to mind is is freedom of feeling mm-hmm. free to be who you are, uh, yeah. who you are designed to be, um, and not burdened by perhaps some of the things that 
were holding you back previously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I'm curious, you know, how, like, cause I feel like you're kind of doing this in your book too, of, of casting a vision of what freedom can really look like. And so I, I'm, and, you know, I can imagine that this is also sort of a journey that you're going through in your church as well to sort of be a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, a, a diverse expression of the church. What does freedom look like in terms of cultural identity, you know, as you've experienced it and as you try to cast that vision for other people? Mm, that's good. Um yeah, I think that's a really good question because we can often get confused <laughs> with what the world is saying freedom looks like uh, mm-hmm. in sort of the, um, we have to be very careful who we're being formed by, which voices we're being formed by in this conversation, because I think mm-hmm. what the world would say freedom is, is for this sort of ultimate individualism of like, I'm just going to do me, you know, to heck with the rest of the world, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, kind sort of, of um, postmodern. But, yeah, everybody's yeah. truth and everybody just does what they want. Exactly. I think it's that that hyper individualism, um, which which pervades even, I think, some of our own uh, North American evangelical Christianity. But I think free, like true freedom in Christ, um, you know, when we talk about unity and diversity, you know, there's there's this idea of being able to live in harmony and in true love in community. I think that is that that has to be one of the building blocks. And the whole point of living in true unity and harmony in community is for, for us to join together in, in our lives and in our voices, our, our stories and our bodies and in, in worship to God. And so true freedom within the church, within the body of Christ, it's that solidarity piece. It's that... Um, there's the the table is big enough for all of our pains <laughs> to be on the table that we can yeah. greet with each other that we're not uh, that we're not competing in any way and that there's there's no hierarchies of 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 whose histories lives you know stories are are superior or inferior mm-hmm, um, but mm-hmm. there's that equal space for all peoples um, and that we're linking arms with each other in all of these different uh ways for the purpose of 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 worshiping god together so i don't know if that answers your question but when i think of freedom to be freedom in christ i think if we truly live that out like that's the biblical vision of of true unity in the body of christ Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah no that's good and i think that at an intellectual level and at a cognitive level, I don't think there's a whole lot of people that would disagree with that vision. Uh, you know, I think that is something that all of us deep down, we really want uh, is to be accepted, to be heard, to feel like our hurts matter, that uh, our, our histories matter. But I think, you know, when it comes to practice, I think it can be, you know, a lot easier said than done. Um, And I think that part of what gets in the way is that a lot of this can sort of go unexamined or un uh, just sort of skate beneath the surface. And, you know, I think both for uh, individuals who experience more of the majority culture and sort of fits with the the norms of what is expected and for people who experience more of the minority experience where it's sort of a struggle to figure out where do I fit? A lot yeah. of these things I feel like can just be 
like our, our defaults. They're just yes. sort of the, the way that we see the world. And I think that especially, you know, with, with what you've been alluding to, which is how difficult it is in our current cultural moment is sort of asking people to not take things for granted anymore, to sort of look critically at things. So yeah. um, how has that been for you either personally or with people that you've talked about this with to sort of get underneath some of those assumptions, some of those things that we all just sort of take for granted, regardless of your background or or upbringing, that they're just sort of things that we have to take a step back from and examine. Yeah, well, I'm going to say something that might be controversial for your podcast. <laughs> that's, that's what uh, but, we're here for. <laughs> but I, 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 I hope your listeners can hear this with all love and, and um, authenticity. I think that in our American context, we have, particularly with people of color, we have created this hierarchy of whose history um, is the most oppressive and, and, and which communities uh, deserve greater spotlight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in many ways, this is the this is why we have the term BIPOC, you know, it's this elevation of black and indigenous voices over Asian and Latino voices, which is problematic. And, and, and I say that because, you know, practical example, March 16th of this year happened, six Asian women were murdered. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was a Tuesday, Tuesday night, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I was, I was posting every day, just trying to speak to this national community of, of oh, Asians yeah. who were hurting, you know, and saying, Hey, you know, we see you, you're loved. Uh, what happened was wrong, you know, calling out the, the sins of racism and, and misogyny and sexism and all the things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kid you not that week between Wednesday and Saturday, just one to four days after that that uh, massacre had taken place. I had an African-American woman, a Latina and a Native American woman, all, you know, three different people in three different settings Mm -hmm. approach me and say, hey, you're taking up too much space to -hmm. talk about Asians. Like, don't you know that there's still issues happening in the black community? Don't you know that there's issues happening with immigrants at the border and in the indigenous communities? And I'm like, yes. I do, but six Asian women were just murdered. Like, why aren't you grieving with me? <laughs> and I think we have so we have so bought into this idea of or this this mentality of scarcity that there's not enough space hmm. to collectively mourn for each other and to treat all of our issues as the same. Yeah. And I think part of it is this limited focus on. U.S. American history, because I think when you focus just on U.S. American history, uh, you know, from the 1600s to the present, then all of a sudden we get this heightened experience of African Americans and, and Native Americans. But what we need to counter that, what what we need to be able to grieve well and grieve together is a global perspective. Hmm. Uh, you know, I was just talking the other day with a first generation Jamaican uh, pastor, Jamaican American pastor, you know, he's, he's black. And, and he was like, I don't, I don't want to be called African American. I want to be called Jamaican American. I have a, in many ways, a different history and a different totally. experience. Yeah. Uh, and Afro-Caribbeans and black people coming from Trinidad and Tobago and, and, and other um, South American countries, they have a different perspective on black suffering 
than uh, you know an African American who can trace their 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 family's ancestry in this country for for centuries. And so, I feel the same way even about Asians uh, and Latinos is that we we have a global perspective, and it's not that we haven't suffered. We've just suffered differently. Uh, my own mother, you know, she's a hundred percent ethnically Indian. But her great grandparents were brought as forced laborers. I mean, slaves, mm. if you will, from yeah. India to Uganda, Africa, to build the railroad by the British Empire. Uh, and then, you know, they they stayed there long enough to to start a village and have families. Uh, and so, my mom was born and raised in Uganda, uh, but then they had to flee as refugees from genocide under the dictatorship of of, of President Idi Amin. Uh, and 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 so, not to make it sound too simple, but like everyone everywhere is suffering. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like there is suffering globally around the world. And so mm-hmm. none of us, whatever our ethnicity is or, or, or whatever community we're coming from, uh, should be able to say, you need to make more space for my community. Um, and you need to stay quiet because mm-hmm. your suffering mm-hmm. isn't as great or as important as, as mine. That, I mean, that's white supremacy, right? <laughs> that, <laughs> the idea of, of, of pitting us against each other, of us competing against each other. No one's going to be able to heal if, if we have that approach. And so to reiterate, what we need to grieve well and to grieve collectively is a greater global perspective. And I'm hoping that as we move forward with these types of, of conversations, we bring more first generation Black immigrants to the table, because I think that's what's going to help um, shift these conversations. Thank you for sharing that. I, it, it can be hard to hear, but I think what I'm hearing beneath the surface is this need to have my story validated. That whether, uh, you know, all those women who are coming to you and saying, you're taking up too much space, you know, what I'm hearing in that is my story hasn't been validated enough yet. Yeah. Um, and it, And I think that it's coming from a place of hurt. You know, that sure. there there is something that is still not corrected in my experience. And so I'm I'm I'm, you know, I don't want to say lashing out. I don't know if that's the best word, but you know, I am speaking out of my hurt or or, yeah. or my need for validation. And you know, I think that regardless, as you mentioned, suffering is a universal human experience. And so, you know, I think that whenever anybody speaks out of a place of hurt or feeling invalidated, that can, even though it's it's totally true and valid, it can push the conversation in a certain direction. Yeah. And then it becomes and devolves into what you're describing as this competition for scarcity yes. of, of sort of picking up the scraps of whatever privileges we can sort of, you know, wipe off the, the floor. So you know, how, how have you tried to sort of wrestle out of that scarcity model, out of speaking from a place of hurts? Because I, I feel like that is something that we don't have to be taught. You know, that is just something that we just do. We just speak out of our own pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and and how, how have you seen ways to sort of, to speak from a different place? Yeah, I think, honestly, it's what you just said is, is, having that perspective shift of 
recognizing that we're all hurting. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it, you, it changes how you respond to someone when you, if you want, if you just see them as like an angry person, like, <laughs> how dare you, <laughs> you know, talk to me versus if you see them as, as someone who's also hurting and you realize, okay, their comments are coming from a place of pain. Um, so I'm not going to take this personally. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lash back out because that's, that's not what either of us needs right now. That's, that's going to be, um, that's going to be closing the door on any possibility of healthy, productive conversations moving forward. Um, I've even just, you know, found myself in situations like this where, you know, there's been more than one occasion where I've been trying to highlight the Asian American experience or even specifically mm -hmm. the pains of the Indian American community, like after 9 11. Totally. Um, and I even had some people respond to me, like, hey, that, you know, this is a big moment for our country. Like, we all just need to rally around. Like, why are you talking about racism after 9 11? Like, <laughs> Like what's yeah. wrong with you? And I'm, I'm like, because we had very different experiences of, of yeah. 9-11. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, to just remind myself, not not necessarily this person is doing what they think is not to give them the benefit of the doubt, but to to think to myself and remind myself, this person is saying what they think is best. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and that's I think what what all of us are always trying to do. We're always trying to do or think what we think what we think is the best thing to do or respond or say in that moment. And, and oftentimes we are so off the mark, but um, we have to give each other grace. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, and uh, when I, when I feel that, when I feel people kind of lashing back at me um, after I'm sharing hurt myself, I think honestly, the only healthy <laughs> honoring, loving thing to do is to say, um, I'm sorry. I, like I, I, I'm sorry for what you've gone through. I'm sorry for what your community has gone through. Um, I'm sorry for your pain. I hear you. I see you. That's important. Um, sometimes that's as far as I get <laughs> because <laughs> sure. you know people. There's there's a there's a spectrum of of pain. I think that if if that person that I'm speaking with then feels validated, sometimes they're open to a conversation after that. And we can get to that step two of like, yeah. okay, how can we see each other's pain? How can we validate each other's stories as you were mm -hmm, saying? Mm -hmm. um, and it can lead to a productive conversation, but um, it always has to begin with sort of swallowing our own pride. <laughs> and instead totally. of saying what I sometimes <laughs> want to say, which is like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, six women were murdered. Like, why are you, you know, why are you mm -hmm, attacking mm -hmm. me now? But yeah. just to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what you're experiencing. I, I, I'm here to listen. And, and that, mm -hmm. you know, I think that sort of love and that kind, we all need that sort of love and that kindness middle of the pandemic, COVID-19. Um, and so I think that really is the only way that we'll be able to have healthy, productive conversations <laughs> moving forward on, on this issue. Totally. Yeah. I appreciate that. And, you know, I think, um, a lot of my own conversations around these topics, it, it can feel so, you know, even, even if, um, say with you, you know, even if it feels like there's, there's, we're on the same team, it, it can feel like there are, there's just so much at stake yeah. that, you know, I don't want to say the wrong thing, or, you know, I don't want to offend somebody. And well, it's, 
the desire is good to, you know, to hopefully we don't want to offend each other and hopefully we can <laughs> sort of see the best in each other that we are all trying to do our best. You know, I think there can still be uh, just a lot of hesitancy and a lot of um, tentativeness. And when I go back to what we, you know, started this conversation about, about like freedom of, of being able to express, you know, that tentativeness doesn't feel yeah. like freedom to me, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that feels like a new set of restrictions. And I think that, uh, you know, when I think about, you know, like my white brothers and sisters and sort of them approaching this topic too, I, I feel like those who want to engage might feel that similar feeling of tenancy, of caution, of feeling like, you know, I've got to be PC, I've got to be politically correct, I, I can't say the wrong thing, otherwise, you know, I'll be called a racist. Um, you know, how, how do we have these discussions in a way that is freeing for everybody, where people's voices are being validated, and at the same time, giving each other, as you mentioned, that, that grace to sort of make mistakes. Like, how have you experienced that? Or ha have there been times where you've had to sort of navigate that tension? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that could be a whole podcast. That, that's a knowing laugh. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, and I think that's another thing that, that we as collectively we but that i have witnessed uh with with within the the church within the body of christ is that we have taken a a page from the playbook of 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 the world in terms of this age of outrage mm -hmm. uh being offended about everything um and and this is probably going to be offensive too i apologize but <laughs> I, you know i think we have gotten to the point where and or i should caveat this there are I have just shared about my own stories, my own pains, my own triggers. Like there, there are real life issues that are triggering to people that bring back trauma and pain. Mm -hmm. I don't want to devaluate that or totally. invalidate that at all. Yeah. But I do think that sometimes that language gets mixed up now so that anytime a person is in, con in conversation with somebody else that they disagree with, Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. becomes triggering. Yeah. Uh, and so, so I'm, I, I definitely want to differentiate between real trauma mm -hmm. and, and people just getting upset because somebody has a different opinion than them. Yeah. Just uh, stopping the conversation. Yeah. You know, and, and I see that too often saying, oh, this is, this is triggering. This is toxic. Um, you know, and I'm like, well, what was it that was toxic? And, and you get down to kind of the heart of it and you're like, oh, they just thought differently from you. <laughs> sure, yeah. Like, well, well, how can we do better to actually just make space for con like, conversation? How can we better have conversations about hard things and to say, mm -hmm. okay, here's where I'm coming from. Okay. I hear where you're coming from. Okay. We don't disagree, but I'm not going to like shame you <laughs> or threaten <laughs> you or reject you or, you know? Um, so I think there's, there's that piece of like, how do we, how do we learn to peaceably converse with people we disagree with? I think the other part is, um, you know, we're also in a moment of, of people leaving, leaving loud. There's a, there's a leave loud culture. Uh, and I think there's, there are necessary moments for that. But I, I also feel like we've gotten to the point where, where it's okay to just get angry and throw up our hands and say like, mm -hmm. I'm done with you. And there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot of, problems in the church problems with with leadership with christian leadership i mean 
I'm acknowledging all of that, but I think something that we're not very good at is offering alternatives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could, you could be upset at your friend or your pastor or whatever for saying something that feels racist or culturally insensitive, but how often do we actually go to that friend or that leader or that pastor and say, Hey, sure. That, that doesn't sound right. Um, I, w- I would prefer it if you said this instead and actually mm-hmm. like giving mm-hmm. people the, the equipping and empowering people to actually make a change uh, yeah. because 10 out of 10 times, if you just come up to somebody and like beat them over the head, I mean, verbally beat them over the head, like you're, you're horrible, you're racist, you're a jerk. I mean, they're not going to be like, oh, you're right. I, I, I have a heart change now. Like I, I'm going to be a different person. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't even respond that way when people talk to me. I'm like, who are you? Uh, but if, if somebody comes to me and is like, hey, that rubbed me the wrong way. Like I, I didn't like it that you said that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my experience, if you say this instead, you know, fill in the blank, I, I think that would be better. I am 100% going to be like yes i'll i'll try that next time thank you for mm-hmm. thank you for approaching me and being willing to say this i'm, I'm sure that was probably awkward for you to do and so so it's having a, a greater posture and disposition to have the hard conversations and also it's also learning to provide people with the alternatives and and as opposed to just saying like you're wrong i'm out of here so mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. if we can if we can all grow in those two things mm-hmm. um i, I I think we'll actually begin to see change in the church, growth in the church, and even outside of it, which is what we want. We want that change, but we also have to play an active role in being part of that change. Sure. Yeah, I I like that. It's very practical, and I think that's very helpful. I I do want to push back and sort of see, because I feel like people from a minority background might hear that and, and feel like, you know, why do I have to do all the work? Why do I like, cause you know, I feel like when you describe that situation, it's usually the people who have some sort of minority status who are on the receiving end of that. Yeah. And then it just sort of feels like, you know, okay, like I can see how that suggestion would be helpful. I can see the practicality of that, but it's exhausting for me to feel like I have to le- have to constantly be the one to initiate that conversation. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, I think we have to hold both together. <laughs> totally. I completely understand everything you're saying. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, there has to be healthy boundaries. You also have to know your personality type, right? Like I'm an Enneagram totally. eight. Like if I see something wrong, I'm going to let you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if you're like a two or a four or a nine, like that's going to be a much harder mountain to climb in terms of like, sure. Hey, I didn't like what you just said. <laughs> so I, I acknowledge that uh, God will call us to play different roles as, as the body of Christ. But I think that we are each called to a role. Um, and just because we have a certain personality or we come from a certain family or tradition or have different values about like honor and respect and what it means to <laughs> challenge our leaders, like all of that, um, we, we can still we can still play a role that it's not an excuse to just bow out. But I, I, I agree, particularly for folks that are like one of the few families of color in a church uh, or at a school or in a neighborhood, it's exhausting to be that person that's always raising their voice. And so, yeah, you need to definitely consider, is it, is it worth it? <laughs> like, <laughs> totally. is it worth it on, on my own, like emotional 
physical, spiritual health? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, wh- when should I speak up? When do I need to just have those boundaries and say, you know, Lord God, please bring somebody else to speak up because I, I can't. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But at the very least, I think those are things we should be thoughtfully, prayerfully processing. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I definitely don't want it to come across as like, that the the burden and the weight is on every person of color because that's absolutely not true yeah yeah and i'm a nine so you know i'm the <laughs> one who's trying to keep everybody happy and all my listeners happy <laughs> so, i love I it exhausting, but um you know i think i want to you know i feel like we've really sort of dug into some of the really difficult things but i also sort of want to pull back because i think uh, a word that we started the conversation with that I think, you know, I haven't really personally haven't really engaged a whole lot with is celebrating, you know, what does it Mm. look like to celebrate culture? You know, when I think for myself, um, I think when we use the word celebrate, it sort of, at least for me, it brings this idea of like throwing a party, you know, making a big, (laughs) like uh, a big deal about it, but that's not what we're talking about at at a practical level. And so I'm just trying to think for myself, like, what does it look like for me to celebrate being Chinese American, for me to be who I am, you know, with all the different aspects of my culture that I embrace, you know, what does that mean for me to celebrate? Is it something that I do on a a daily basis or, or just like when I'm around like people or when I'm around people who get it? Um, What does that word bring up for you in terms of what does celebrating culture look like yeah that's a great question um and like in many of these other areas i do believe that it begins internally kind of like that song in moana right where they're they're singing at the beginning about like we know who we are um i really think that knowing who you are is is laying the foundation for celebrating who you are mm-hmm. um because you can't celebrate what you don't know and so i think for me going on a journey of 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 figuring out who am I? What is my story? How am I, how am I like my parents and my grandparents? How am I different? Mm-hmm. Right? Like figuring out all of those, those nuances of first generation versus second, you know, second generation, third generation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then also, you know, my mom being hundred percent ethnically Indian, my dad being of, of British and German heritage and, and I'm bicultural. So I, I'm a mix of those two different cultures and stories uh which is in many ways also a dizzying reality i mean my my dad has british heritage so i am i have both the history of the colonizer and the colonized within me Mm -hmm. um you know the the oppressor and the oppressed like both of that is in my story um being both privileged and disprivileged both Mm -hmm. of that is in my story as well and so like i am I am my parents' story, and then I am also my own. And and that's Mm. what I talk about in my book, that our cultural identity are the narratives born from our our, uh, ethnicities. We are storied people. We are are made of stories. So what is our story? And learning to to, to wrestle with that, to grapple with that, to map that out, um, there's a certain... Uh, sense of, I mean this in a, in a spiritual way, a God-given pride that comes from knowing our story and, and knowing who I am. Mm-hmm. And I can be proud of that. And even just internally, like that's celebratory. There's there's a, there's even, a, I think, a, a, an emotional and mental and even physical stability that comes with knowing who we are, having that, that, uh, that there's a, a solid foundation. And so um, 
that's step one, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think is knowing our story. And then step two and step three, if you will, is is leaning into those cultural expressions that that express your story into the world. Um, it's, it's, it's why my husband and I, we are very intentional about cooking Mexican and Indian food every week. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. part of how we're passing on that legacy to our children of who we are by what we eat. Sure. Um, being very intentional about the holidays we celebrate and and talking about what it means to be Indian, talking about what it means to be Mexican and, and bicultural and multicultural. Those are like daily conversations in our home. We do this because we are Indian or we do yeah. this because we are Mexican. Like that's part of our vocabulary. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and, and to say that in a way that, that that's, that's God honoring. Um, but, but yeah, I'd go back to step one being knowing our story. That's, that's uh, where celebration begins. And uh, obviously, we've been talking about a lot of themes and topics that are in your book. And I wanted to go back to that because one of the framing scriptures, it looks like, I, I you know, unfortunately haven't had the honor of reading your book yet, uh, but it looks like one of the framing scriptures, at least from the title, is First uh, Corinthians. Um, yeah. And in that passage, it talks about becoming, how, how the Apostle Paul was becoming all things to all people. And I'm curious sort of how that passage sort of resonated with you as you were writing this book, as you were thinking about some of these things, Um, you know, because I think that for some people, if you just sort of take it at face value, it it could sound like you're just conforming. Um, You're just sort of, you know, uh, you're, you're losing your, your, your sense, but, you know, thinking about who Paul was, I, I don't think that's what he meant. <laughs> uh, and I'm uh, guessing from, from our conversation, that's not exactly what you mean. So can you talk a little bit about how that scripture sort of informed this idea of becoming all things? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're spot on first Corinthians uh, chapter nine verses 19 through 23 um, is threaded throughout the entire book. And so I, I unpack that verse by verse through through the chapters. Um, that that passage, the second verse in, so verse 20, it talks about the apostle Paul says, to the Jew, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Uh, and I, I have to start there because that's what grabbed me uh, when I was beginning my research and, 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 and this book journey. And, you know, First Corinthians was a, was a book I'd read tons of time and I'd read that passage sure. before, but all of a sudden that hit me differently because I began to wonder to myself, okay, Paul is a Jew. He's a Jewish man. What in the world does it mean that a a Jewish man needs to become like a Jew (laughs) to win the Jews? Uh, And and so I, that started my research and delving into the first century world. And, you know, what becomes very quickly apparent is that the first century Jewish world was not monolithic, that the, the, mm-hmm. the Jewish peoples of Paul's time were incredibly diverse. You know, Paul mm-hmm. himself was a part of a group called the Pharisees, um, which, which came with its own sort of cultural and theological, you know, stamp, if you will. And, and Paul was also part of the educated elite. So there's that, mm-hmm. that socioeconomic mm-hmm. layer. But then there were also Sadducees that 
would have said they were completely different from the Pharisees. <laughs> they were, they were, um, you know, the Essenes, the people of the land. There were zealots, you know, the political activists. Uh, you had Jewish people all throughout the diaspora. So, so people with bicultural and multicultural makeups, you know, that had mixed with different people groups uh, in terms of language and, and, and identity and things like that. And so now when you hear Paul saying to the Jew, I became like a Jew, he's actually making a very provocative statement. I mean, he's, he's declaring that no two Jewish people are the same. Mm-hmm, <laughs> uh, and, and also as he goes out in the, in the following verses, that no two Gentiles or no two Greeks are the same. Mm-hmm. And so with that recognition, he's saying that to, to win people over for the gospel, I'm going to learn how to connect uh, with each individual person that I'm going to adapt my language and my, my behavior and my engagement with them um, because I'm not going to treat any two people as the same. Uh, and, and yet at the same time, he does that from a very distinct well uh, of his own cultural identity as, as a Jewish man. And, and so there's this, this unique delicate dance or balance, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that's also one of the starting points when it comes to understanding culture and cultural identity is that no two people are the same. And Mm -hmm. I I say this in my book uh, that, you know, I, as a, as a second generation Indian American woman, like I am like all Indians, I am like some Indians and I'm like no other Indian. Mm -hmm. Um, The same, you could say true for, for, for a black man or, or an Asian American woman, or, Mm -hmm. you know, a native Mm -hmm. American that, that, uh, we have similarities to our communities, and yet there is also nobody quite like us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so, how do we, how do we, on the one hand, um, develop our cultural identities, be be proud of who we are, celebrate who we are, and yet also learn to turn around and treat each person unique uh, and, 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 and different and to get to know them and not be like, oh, I, you know, I, I have one black friend, therefore this other black guy at the grocery store, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to treat him like I do with my friend because they, you know, must be similar cultures. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we have to not see any two people as the same. And so that in many ways was my launching pad for this, this, this book with, with Paul's uh, passage in first Corinthians. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I think, it's a it's a it's a helpful image to to think about you know when when you sort of put it into its historical context of Paul wasn't just this abstract guy you know he had his own culture his own experiences that he was bringing to the table mm-hmm. um, and that for him he had to sort of make that choice of how am I going to win these people to the gospel you know what is that what is it going to take mm-hmm. um, and I think that especially for us here in, in the U.S. and those of us who have certain levels of privilege, I think there can be a lot of inertia when it comes to making movement of, um, but it's so uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. Like, it doesn't sound <laughs> fun to me. You know, I, I sound like I'm whining almost, <laughs> you know, but, but, but I think that, you know, and I'm, I'm speaking to myself as much as I am to anybody else that it, it's so hard sometimes to take that first step. Um, to make those cross-cultural connections. You know, I think there are some people that uh, are really easy to get along with, you know, for us, uh, for for any person, but then there are those people that are difficult to sort of reach across to. And I think the default mode for us is to say, I'm going to put more time and energy into the 
relationships that are easier for me to to work with. And yeah. I'm gonna maybe I can acknowledge that you know that's good for me, but that's too much work. Um, or I, I don't have the space for that, or that's too uncomfortable for me. So, um, how in your own life have you un uh, have you overcome some of that inertia? Um, what what has really motivated you to sort of take those steps? Yeah, for sure. Well, I I do feel like having grown up on the margins, <laughs> I have a very high radar for other people on the margins, and I so mm-hmm. I I think it's easier for me honestly, um, and I don't say this in a prideful way, but I think it's easier for me because of my experiences to be more comfortable going up to somebody else that I feel like is also alone uh, or struggling and to be like, hey, let's be friends, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, like mm-hmm. I, I see you, I got you, like, yeah. like you're going to be okay because now, you know, we're, we're in this together. Um, and, and because I was the lone brown skin girl in an all white community, I was constantly learning how to connect across cultures to adapt uh, my words and my actions to 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 connect with the people around me. And granted, as a young girl, I was doing that more just out of fear of, of being shamed. <laughs> I was just mm-hmm. like any middle school teenager. I'm just trying to have friends and fit in and be loved. Um, and it wasn't until later in life that I realized, one, I, this is actually a God-given skill and talent. And, and, mm-hmm. and two, this this process really of being a chameleon is actually something that all Christians are called to do in, in, in the vein of first Corinthians nine. Um, but to your, to your question, I think it's very important because I do have a lot of people, um, particularly white brothers and sisters who, who ask me like, how do I do this? Well, because I think oftentimes we have such a low bar of uh, cross-cultural friendships and, and mm-hmm. it can either look like just, you know, being in your own lane, you know, you're at the grocery store, you're walking down the street to the park or whatever, you happen to pass by a person of color <laughs> and you smile at them or you yeah. say hi to them and you're like, check, <laughs> like, <laughs> I am a nice person, yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. or, um, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you say, you know, hi, how are you at church or something like that. But uh, the, the, the thought of inviting them to your home or, or actually having a, a deeper conversation just terrifies you. Because uh, I, I think you mentioned this earlier, uh, because you either don't know what to say, because you know nothing about their community or their history sure, or anything yeah. or you're just so terrified you'll offend them that you're like I'll I, I prefer not to even talk to them because I don't <laughs> want to get myself in that situation and so we mm-hmm. sort of excuse ourselves and and and, and justify not talking to the other person mm-hmm. um and I think we have to give ourselves the grace and the permission to make mistakes um mm-hmm. we don't know what we don't know uh you know even for myself somebody that writes regularly on issues of culture and race I don't get it right like I still accidentally uh, offend people and then (laughs) I have to with all grace and humility apologize and say I'm so sorry I did not mean for that to be offensive how can I do better Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that if we don't actually put ourselves out there to make those mistakes we'll never grow We'll never learn. Um, yeah. And so I think we, we have to begin with giving ourselves the grace to say, I'm not going to get it right all the time. And that's okay. I'm going to just keep learning, keep loving um, and, and see, 
and and to pray for God to to give us the the boldness and the 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 courage to to reach out and say to somebody, hey, you want to grab coffee or hey, you know, would your family like to come over for a meal? Because that's ultimately the goal. I think when we look at the life of Jesus, you know, he's saying, hey, I'm coming to your house today. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I'm going to go eat at your home. Yeah. Um, living real life relationships with people, breaking bread together. That's the goal of cross-cultural relationships and friendships, not merely just having a, a, a fact list of, of, of their things that happened in their country or, or just mm-hmm. knowing their name, like it has to go deeper. And so knowing what our goal is, should encourage us to to understand better our trajectory of how to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just trying to get to know them like you would any other person. Yeah. yeah. Amen. So we are coming up to our time, but I did want to go back to um, an organization that you're part of the Asian American Christian Collaborative, you know, and uh, as you've alluded to, you know, sometimes Asian American voices can sort of get lost in the mix or it, it can be as aggressive as saying, you know, you're taking up too much space. Um, and so mm-hmm. here is a space, you know, can you talk a little bit about what um, sort of compelled you and your colleagues to sort of start this organization, sort of what it is that you guys do with uh, AACC? Yeah, definitely. So. It was March of last year, March of 2020, and um, at, at this point, we had now been hearing from friends and 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 from folks around the country, uh, Asian American friends, just different experiences that they were having um, with anti-Asian racism related to the to the pandemic. Mm. Um, everything from having people be coughed on, spit on, uh, to even I, I had one friend whose whose child got off the bus and these white kids also on the bus like chased him down the street to his house shouting Mm -hmm. coronavirus um and not only that not only were asian americans beginning to to experience a heightened form of of anti-asian racism uh but then also asian american christians were trying to bring up this issue within the church uh and 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 were too often being dismissed um Mm -hmm. one Asian American Christian man in particular tried bringing this up to I think the elders of his church and he was called a snowflake and people were sharing these stories with myself with with Raymond Chang uh, at Wheaton College um, and and some others and we got together and we were talking and we were like we got, we have to do something <laughs> like <laughs> like we we feel or, or the national Asian American community feels invisible, you know, and, and we were experiencing that double threat, you know, the, we, we, you know, we're susceptible to the coronavirus like everybody sure, else, yeah. <laughs> but then on top of that, we're experiencing racism due to the coronavirus. And so, mm. um, and we just, our hearts were compelled to sort of wake up the church uh, and, and, and to encourage the church to address this issue. And so, uh, Raymond Chang and myself, uh, we formed together uh, a, a group of, of um, drafters and we put that included Margaret Yu. Uh, mm-hmm. And we uh, put together the statement on anti-Asian racism in the time of COVID-19. Yeah. Um, and within a, a few weeks, it had garnered over 10,000 signatures. It, it really mm-hmm. became a statement that was circulated nationally, not only in churches, which is what our hope was, but also um, in, in universities and Ivy League schools, many presidents uh, of, of different universities and seminaries signed it as well. Uh, 
and began implementing some of the changes that we were calling for, such as uh, addressing anti-Asian racism from the pulpit, uh, you know, mm-hmm. into their their churches and, and, and organizations. And so it's from that statement that AECC was born. And, uh, you know, since its inception in, in March of last year, we have sought to encourage and equip and mobilize Asian American uh, Christians and friends of the community to follow Christ holistically. Uh, and, and, and certainly in doing so, while we address a wide variety of issues through an Asian American lens, um, you know, we certainly want to help people understand the ways in which our faith and justice or the ways in which gospel and justice intersect and, and how mm-hmm. we care for people holistically. Um, and so last summer, for example, after the murder of George Floyd, we organized really a historic march um, in Chicago in which somewhere between one to 2,000 uh, folks marched from uh, the historic Chinese Christian Union Church in, in Chinatown to yeah. uh, Progressive Church, which is uh, Pastor Charlie Date's church. Uh, and I, you know, I don't think anything like that has ever been done where, where African-American and 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 black Christians came together to say, we're going to stand in solidarity and, and Asian, specifically Asian Americans standing in support of black lives and dignity. Yeah. Um, it was a really powerful moment. And then this year after the March 16th Atlanta massacre, um, AECC partnered with, with uh, churches and organizations in 14 different cities to, to, to organize 14 different prayer rallies. Uh, the amazing Angela Lowe, <laughs> her sister was part of the one here yeah. in Austin, their church, Hope Community Church uh, was involved in hosting. Um, and so, you know, that's something that I think people also come to us for as ACC is to learn how to live out the full gospel uh, and including the role that justice uh, plays in that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And thank you for all the work that you've been doing in this space. You know, as an Asian American, it's it's so cool to see the, the ways in which people like me are advocating for, for people, both um, for Asian Americans and for other minority groups who are experiencing experiences of disprivilege or oppression. Mm-hmm. So thank mm-hmm. you. And, you know, as we're wrapping up, uh, do you mind just giving a quick plug of, you know, if people are interested to hear more about uh, what you have have to say on this topic, where they can find you, website, other things you'd like to plug? Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm on social media. Michelle, my handle is Michelle Ami Reyes on Instagram and uh, Facebook, I'm on Twitter as well, Dr. Michelle Reyes. Uh, and I do have a website, michelleamireyes.com. Uh, and I, I have a lot of freebies, uh, including a, a video series, which um, different organizations and churches sometimes use as part of their talks and workshops. So that's available. Um, I have a free downloadable PDF of uh, dinner table conversation cards, which I think could be useful either uh, between parents and children or like a small group at, at church just to facilitate thoughtful conversations about issues of, of culture and race. Um, and I have some other things on there, a study guide that accompanies the book, a teaching kit. If, if, if you are a Christian leader, pastor or professor that would like to teach on these issues in your classroom or church. Um, so those are all a wide variety of free resources that are available on my website. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. 
thank you for tuning in to the Hard Questions, No Answers podcast. Still have questions? Oh good, I was afraid we answered them all. For more information about HQ&A podcast, visit drgabelow.com. That's D-R-G-A-B-E-L-O-W-E.com. Additional educational materials recommended by my guests can be found in the podcast tab. And for updates, news, and behind the scenes, follow HQ&A podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at HQ&A P-O-D. HQ&A podcast is independently produced by Gabriel Lowe. Music is Cocktail Fun by Stock Music 331 found on Pond5. And logo design is by Kenny Lowe. Stay tuned for new episodes released each Wednesday. And thank you for joining me on the journey of no answers.